I'm going to put this up here as a little visual aid. It's a little hard to see, but it'll make sense in a minute. Before we get into it, I would like to remind and encourage everybody that next month is our month-long effort to invite friends, family, strangers, whoever, invite them into our church. Use that opportunity. It doesn't have to only be that month, obviously, but use that opportunity. Be looking now for who I can just, just one person. Guess what would happen if everybody in here brought one other person with them? This is some tough math, but if everybody in here of all different ages brought just one, it's easy looking at that this 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 monumental challenge monumentous challenge in front of us to grow our church and think ah, I've got to bring 300 more people if everybody just brings one we double I, I mean that's a big jump that's one to one and everybody can do that so be looking for who God has placed in your path I truly believe that God sets those things up and all we got to do is just step in there. Every story has a beginning. I tend to think in very um, visual and often the sort of cinematic um, terms on things like this. And this one, this story um, has a very cinematic sort of a vibe to it. A movie opening sort of a scene. There's this grand... Uh, epic level context of God's people, the nation of God's people, they're crumbling and they're doing it to themselves and they're also being hit from the outside. The Philistines are always out to get them and on the inside they are letting themselves crumble morally, religiously, economically. Everything is kind of falling apart. They have this history of crumbling and falling apart and then crying out to God for help and he rescues and then they take this this better situation and then they crumble it again and right now they are in the midst of turmoil there's there's there is brutality on the inside there's cruelty on the inside there's the the higher up Religious figures are taking advantage of people. There's just this huge need for rescue. And they are beginning to cry out to God for a king. God, if, if we just had a king, everything is going to be alright. Somebody who will come in and make everything work like it's supposed to work. And in the midst of all this, let's zoom in on this one little family. And it's an interesting family. Different sort of a, 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 a dynamic than um, than most of us are uh, accustomed to. There's this husband Elkanah, Elkanah, uh, who has two wives. One wife. I'm not going to make any jokes about. It. I can barely keep up with the one, but I could make those jokes. I'm not going to. One wife has already given him multiple children. And, you know, that's some politically incorrect language. That's just how things operated back then. That was her, that was how things 
were viewed, that was her value as a wife. He, like, she granted him multiple children. That was Peninnah. That's the only way I know how to say that name, Peninnah. Hannah, on the other hand, was able to give him no children. She was, as they said, barren, unable to have any children. Elkanah loved Hannah. He loved her over the other. And so the other taunted her relentlessly, was constantly making comments about how much more valuable as a wife she was. And so they are making their annual pilgrimage to Shiloh to offer sacrifices. And here is apparently where things get worse every year. And it's just this moment of honoring God for all of the good in our lives, offering sacrifices, and she rises to this occasion and says, look at all the good that I've been able to offer my husband. You can give him no children. I've given him multiple children. And they eat as a part of this, uh, this, this, this um, annual pilgrimage, this special meal, and she can't even eat it. Year after year, her appetite leaves her because of this relentless taunting and mockery from her rival, as um, Hannah describes it. And one day, she's just had enough. This time, she stands up in the midst of all this, and she goes over to the side, and she begins to pray. And she is praying so passionately and so intensely that her mouth is moving, but words aren't even leaving her mouth. And Eli, this old priest who's sort of, he's very seasoned. I kind of picture him as just this grizzled old, he's, he's worked a long time. He's, you know, handing things over to his very evil sons, and he's just kind of resting over to the side. And he sees her there, and she's so intensely praying, as I was saying, that her mouth is moving, but she's not making any sounds, and she's obviously very emotional. And he says, oh, this lady's been drinking. Why are you coming in here drunk? Have you not had enough? Go out, settle yourself, come back later, get yourself together. And she says, no, 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 no. I haven't been drinking. I am just crying out to God in my anguish, and I am pouring out my soul to the Lord. Hang on to that phrase. Hang on to it for later. She says, I'm not drunk. This is the prayer of a desperate, pain-ridden, shame-covered woman, and I'm crying out to God, pouring my soul out to Him. And He says, may God give you what you are asking for. And so they leave, they go home, but as she goes, there's this really cool thing that happens. It says that her face, in, in, in uh, verse 8, says her face was no longer downcast. Something happened. She didn't know what was going to happen yet. It's not like God gave her this message of everything is going to be okay. There was something that happened in that moment on her end when she poured her soul out to God. Something in her released that burden. 
Something in her was no longer downcast. God, then as they leave in due time, she has a child, becomes pregnant, has a child. Her world is now changed. She feels like this shame is now lifted from her, but she knows that she has made a promise earlier. As she cried out to God, she promised, if you will give me this, this child, this, this gift that I'm asking for, I will dedicate my child to you. I will give him up. He will be yours. And this is sort of the vacation Bible school little version of it. This is the, the depth of it here. I will give him to you. You know, he will... will will be dedicated to you all his life. And so she knows she kept her promise. And her husband makes me laugh all throughout the entire thing. Earlier on, she, 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 she's upset expressing this. I just need a son. If I only had a child, this would all be okay. And he says to her, hey, it's all right. Aren't I enough? Aren't I, an, aren't I more valuable to, to you as your husband than ten children? And she says, you, ah, you just, I love you and all, but there's just something missing. And so here he says, okay, if that's your promise, that's your promise. And they go out on their, their, their um, annual pilgrimage, and she says, I'm not going to go... Just yet, I need to wait until he is weaned. I just don't need him to need to be nursing before I hand him over. And so he's just at the age where he's not having to nurse anymore. That's how young this child is. In my mind, as a small child, I pictured him being like 8 or 9 or 10 years old, something like that, you know, adult, independent. But he's just a child, just this tiny child who's just stopped nursing. And so she goes... She goes on on the pilgrimage on her own with him. And she, you know, after the, the, uh, the, the regular things going on, walks over to Eli and says, Hey, remember me? I was the lady that you thought was drunk because I was praying so intensely. Well, in that moment, I prayed a prayer to God, asking God for this child, and I promised him if he gave me this child that I would give him to you to serve God for his whole life. Nazarite vow and all, no, no, no earthly um, vices or pleasures, no, no razor on his head, and he will spend his entire life working here, serving you. And so Eli, this old man, all right, bring me the child. And it's this, this small child that's just stopped nursing, and he's this old man, and he now is in charge of this, this very, very small child. And so he takes him in, and he grows him up, and he trains him, and he, this, this small child, Samuel, wears this ephod that only those in much um, higher positions are, are 
able to, to, to um, put on. And so he works and he serves so wholeheartedly that it, it doesn't specifically say this, but I kind of get the vibe that as Eli becomes this older man and his, his other two sons are off into evil things, that Samuel, this boy, as he grows, becomes, I mean, he's, he's not in charge, but he kind of begins to run the show because he is there working and serving so wholeheartedly. And so one night, after he has grown, and it's very similar language, Luke actually quotes it, um, referring to Jesus as a younger child. It says he grew in stature and in favor amongst God and man. And so one night... And I love this reference. The lamp of the Lord has not yet gone out. You know, in that moment, it's, you know, a physical lamp there. But I kind of feel like it's also this beautiful imagery of, of God has not given up on these people yet. He still has a plan and there's still hope and he's, he's still there. His presence is still there. The people have crumbled themselves almost into nothing, but God is still with them. And his presence has not disappeared yet. And so Samuel is there laying down. Eli, long since already asleep, I'm sure. And so Samuel hears Samuel. And Eli, I mean, um, you know, he... he uh, jumps up and he in my bible classes as a kid I pictured him like sprinting down the hall in, 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 in his jammies and everything saying yes you called me and old Eli says I didn't call you go back to bed you know what time it is go back to bed and he goes back to bed and it happens again and he sprints down the hall you know scurries down the hall Eli did you call me it's me I'm here I'm here I didn't call you What's wrong with this kid? Go back to bed. Do you know what time it is? And he does it again and it happens again. But this time, it kind of hits Eli. Oh, my goodness. Maybe this is not just this kid acting crazy. Maybe God is trying to speak to this child. And I kind of feel like Eli is probably getting a little bit scared. Excited, but scared. Because earlier, he has received a message that God is not happy with how things are running. He's not happy with Eli's sons because they are taking advantage of people. They're stealing, doing all kinds of, of evil things as the priests. But he's not happy with Eli because Eli's allowing it to happen. So I kind of feel like in that moment, Eli, realizing God is speaking to Samuel, he's kind of thinking, oh no, this may not be good. So he sends him back to bed, but this time he says, listen, I think that this may be God trying to speak to you right now. If this happens again, don't scurry down here in your jammies. Rise up and say, Lord, I'm here. I'm your servant. Speak to me. And so he does. He sends him back to bed, and again, he hears this voice, Samuel. And Samuel says exactly as Eli asked him to. 
It's me. I'm your servant. I'm here. Speak to me, Lord. And so the Lord speaks to him. Plain as day, clear as a bell, he says, what I'm about to tell you, when people hear about it, it's going to make their ears tingle, which kind of sounds exciting at first. And then he starts to tell him, look, I'm about to clean house. For generation upon generation, it's been this lineage of priests. I'm about to change all that. I'm going to shake all of that up, and I'm going to clean all of that out. And I'm going to put you into this place. And this is a, a, a child at this time. Don't forget, this is a child hearing this. Not only is he hearing that God is about to do this house cleaning event of a thing to, to, to his master, Eli. And so the weight of that, do I tell him? Am I not supposed to tell him? Do I tell him? But also... You're going to take over. You are going to be the king maker and the king breaker. And you are, you are pretty much going to be how I rescue my people from this moral decay that they have created for themselves. That's a lot to tell a child. So he's just sitting there taking all this in. I can't imagine what he's feeling as he's being told all this. And so he sends him back to bed. And in the morning, Eli says, okay, don't hold anything back. Tell me everything. Tell me everything that he told you. And so Samuel, probably hoping to not have to do that, says, okay, here's, here's everything he told me. Here's what's about to happen. God sees that his people are in desperate need of an overhaul, not just a little help but a house cleaning, overhaul, changing it all. And he has put me into that spot. And Eli also learns that his family is about to undergo a curse of not ever being able to reach old age. And his sons, his sons are going to die on the same day. And it's going to be very clear to him that God is not happy with how things have been, but he's got this new plan to change it all. And so Eli, in this moment of acceptance, and I think incredible faith, says, let it be as the Lord says. Much like Elkan, Elkanah earlier, if that's how it is, that's how it is. Let it be as God says. And so Samuel grows on up into this changer of this nation God does it but he uses Samuel to to usher in these kings to change this nation and to 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 be God's hands and feet and and voice in this nation it even says and this made me think of of every school teacher homeschool teacher Bible class teacher anything parent it says, God allowed none of Samuel's words to fall to the ground. How great would that be? To, to have none of your words that you're trying to pass on fall to the ground. That's beautiful. And that's, I mean, God shows from the get-go, I'm in this. I'm all over this situation. I'm going to use Samuel to get this nation back on its feet. 
And it's this incredible moment where God receives this dedication. It says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord until this encounter. And then after that, he knows the Lord. Because in the, the morning, he hears his name called again. But this time, he knows this time it's just Eli. Because now he knows God's voice. And so from here on out, God is with him and is, and is in him and does all these epic, incredible things in him, which lead us into all the things. Like, this is a prequel to all the things we've been talking about with David and all the incredible events of all that. This is, this is how all that is activated. It all comes back to this. Uh, Let's talk a second, though, about a different... As I was going through this specific story, I was intending to be much more focused on Samuel. But there's this thing that, that, that just kept hanging on my, nerd, my nerves and grabbing my attention. Uh... There's this moment in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I bet you didn't think I was going to make reference to. They're at a museum, and there's all this incredible artwork all around, and they, you know, in super cool 80s style, looking around the museum, and they're sneaking around, and they're running around. And then Cameron, a character in the movie, just stops, and he's looking at this painting called... um, that's called A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jotte. I think that's how you say it. It doesn't matter. But there's this beautiful, big, pointillist painting of, this, of, of a whole bunch of people on a picnic at a beach. And he stands there, and he's looking at it. And he just seems to get locked on to this one face of this child in this painting and he just in the midst of all that that's what he kind of zeroes in and he focuses on and he and he just sort of has a connection to to that spot on the painting looking at this there's so much going on like this song that Hannah sings as she dedicates Eli or, or I mean Samuel there's this like battle cry, epic song that's reminiscent of like Israel's war cry songs over enemies and vindication from God that echoes on into history with these new kings and new ways of looking at a king. And it, it even echoes on into the time of Jesus and the, the, the new church and all of this grand scale epic stuff happening. But there was this one part of this that just kept grabbing at me. And I just kind of had to redirect a little bit and look at this. It's, it's this prayer of Hannah. Let's look over in First uh, Chan- Samuel 1, verse 10. It says, In her deep anguish, 
Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's mystery, misery sorry, and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, make no mistake, Hannah is praying earnestly and, and sincerely and from her heart. But I'm kind of looking around at what's happening, like why she's praying this. And the nature of that song that she sings as she dedicates her son, it's not a song of, of love for her child or thank you for what you're about to do. In him, it's a prayer of, of vindication over her enemy. And her enemy, her rival, is this other wife. Maybe I'm misreading things, but I kind of feel like a lot of her motivation is coming from just stop this taunting I'm receiving. I'm not saying that that makes Hannah evil. I'm saying... Let's not get this idea. I think that we kind of paint a pure, pristine, polished sort of a picture. That's a whole lot of peas, but this pure, pristine picture of, of biblical characters, like they had everything in place and their motives were always pure and their hearts were always just right, unless it talks about them as a villain in the Bible. We kind of lift them up and exalt them to this perfect image make no mistake Hannah was sick and tired of being mocked of course there was something in her that longed for a son I'm sure longed for a child but but a, a whole lot of her motivation was just a deeply personal cry out to God make this shame stop I need relief because this woman is relentlessly making fun of me all the time. She couldn't have known that her son was going to make and break kings and change the path of a nation. She didn't know that yet. Unless there's something that I'm missing, she didn't know that stuff yet. This is just a deeply personal cry out to God. Her rival has been relentless. And this prayer at the beginning, mixed with this song that she sings, basically shouting at her rival to stop boasting because God has, has shown me that he has my back on this. It really, a lot of it honestly comes down to that. Give me victory over this rival. I think it is really important for us to view people in the Bible as people in the Bible. Not these unattainable, unapproachable, constantly aware of God's epic purposes and pure, holy, selfless motives. I can almost hear her prefacing that prayer with, and, and, and please hear yourself in this if this has ever been you, because I know it's been me. I, can, I mean, it's not written in the Bible, but I can just kind of hear her saying it. 
Eli is looking on as, these, as her lips are moving, but no sound is coming out. I can just hear her prefacing this prayer with, God, I know that there are so many other things that you could be worried about right now. I know that there are so many more important things, but this, this is what's on my heart. I, I am so beaten down by this shame that this other person is pouring on me. I need relief from this to just keep going. I know that you've got bigger fish to fry. I know that you have bigger things going on. But please hear my cry. And he does. Why is it so important that we acknowledge that she's, I mean, just bluntly put, you could, you could call it a selfish prayer. You could call it that. I think that we tend to, if, if we're opening, opening up the floor, you know, does anybody have any kind of a prayer need? It's always going to be. For other people, and that's a great thing to pray for, but I think that we're scared to say, you know what, I need some help right now. We do it sometimes, but I think our first instinct is to say, my neighbor, my friend, my mom, because I think that we are afraid to say, this prayer that I'm about to ask for is, it's for me. I think it is so important that we get this idea that she was human. After she had her prayer answered, after he gave her this child, she sang this song of vindication over her enemies and called her enemy boastful and said, close your mouth because God is on my side. God's got this. He's with me. Maybe I'm assuming too much, but I kind of feel like these are evidences that she is coming from a very human place in this. Why is it so important that we acknowledge that? Because I feel like we do this, we paint pictures, and actually, this is kind of a bad example because it's not quite so pristine and polished. But this is Hannah. It's in, I mean, you know, it is, it's not actual Hannah. It's not a photograph. Um, this, this has been in the conference room for a long time. This is Hannah crying out to God, and I feel like this artist, any artist rendition, kind of mirrors our tendency to place these biblical figures on these pedestals and say they are perfect. They, are, they have it all figured out. They have all their motives in the right place, and they're only crying out to God from a pure, selfless, holy place. It is so important for us to realize that that is just not the case. Besides Jesus Christ himself, nobody else fits that bill in the Bible. We need to see how similar that we are to people in the Bible. That they were people too. It even just outright acknowledges that in the New Testament. It says, look, Elijah was a man just like us. And he he prayed to God that it wouldn't rain and it stopped raining for seven years. Elijah was just a dude. Excuse my worldly language there, but he was just a dude, just a guy who had dedicated himself to God, yes, and God used, yes, but he wasn't perfect, no more perfect than you or I are. It is really important that we remember that God allows for that. 
God could have said, look, I've got a nation to save. You've got these interpersonal issues, work it out. That's a selfish prayer. I've got bigger stuff happening. He could have said that. Just being blunt, he could have said that, but he didn't. He heard what she was crying out for, and he cared about it. And he gave her what she was asking for. And in the midst of all that, this is still in the context of his people falling apart. God, while big enough to handle this nation's problems on this national level, on this grand scale, things are falling apart and he's got to deal with that. He's big enough to handle that, but he's not just maxing out his bench press on that and that's all he can do. While he's handling that, yes, I can talk about bench press because obviously I'm a, an expert in all that stuff. While he's handling that, he's also got the heart in him that cares about Hannah crying out with this selfish prayer. And I'm putting big, gigantic quotes on that selfish part because that's what was happening in her world. And God cared about that. We've got to release ourselves from this idea that I can only come to God with things if everything in my heart and everything in my life and all my motives are exactly like they need to be all the time. Of course, I need to strive to grow in my maturity. I need to examine my motives and I need to constantly strive to to make them purer and better as I grow. But God is not waiting for me to nail that before he cares about the stuff that I'm crying out to him about. How many times have I, have I gone to God and said, oh, this is so small compared to all the bigger picture things that my God has got on his plate. And sometimes I don't even pray it. Because I let myself talk myself out of that. But God shows in this situation that despite the deeply personal and individual nature of her prayer, he still cared about it. And I think that that's a beautiful part of God that we have got to constantly remind ourselves of. And that Getting that kind of comes from this idea of realizing that the people in the Bible are human, just like me. And in a stroke of graceful genius, God answers this nation's cry and Hannah's deeply personal cry with the same birth, with the same child, with the same answer. This child comes along and is going to change this nation's path, God's people's path, and do amazing, awesome, epic things through God's power, and he's answering Hannah's deeply personal prayer with the same act. I don't, I don't see any other like huge, epic meaning to that other than that's just really, really cool. <laughs> that's just awesome. God can handle the massive, the grand scale, national level stuff. He's that big and he's so compassionate at the same time. 
that he cares about your individual prayer. The cries of your individual heart. I can just see Hannah sitting there praying. God, I know you've got bigger things going on. But, I mean, it beautifully, beautifully states it. She was pouring her soul out to God. And that is what God wants with us. I don't want my child to ever look at me and think, he's got too much to worry about. I don't need to go to him about this, you know, this kid at school picking on me. Or I'm scared about this. Or I'm excited about this. I don't want my child to ever look at me and think that I'm too busy or have too big of an, an issue on the table to, to listen to my child. And that's how God is, too, times infinity. He wants us to pour our hearts out to him. Our prayers don't have to pass these grand tests of pure, selfless holiness. It is not a prerequisite that it fits into the epic grandness of God's national level plans for me to come and ask him for something. He says, I'm your father. Cry out to me. I care. Nailing that prerequisite. I mean, nailing all of that stuff before I bring something to God is not a prerequisite to him caring about my heart. And it is so important that we get that. God begs us to get that. So I would challenge us to remember God is big and God has big things on the table that he is dealing with, but God is able and God is caring. I would beg you, God begs you, don't be afraid to bring whatever it is to the table and ask him for help. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for being that God that is so big and so mighty and so powerful that spoke the universe into creation, into existence, that steered the paths, that, that still steers the path, paths of nations. And here's the cries of multitudes of people, but that still hears the cry of my heart for deeply personal things. Thank you for being that God. May we never be afraid to bring those things to you like Hannah did. God, help us to never see other people around us or those in the Bible as being these unattainable figures that we can never measure up to. Help us to see that you care about them and you care about us. That you are a God who cares about the path of a nation and just as much cares about my heart. We love you. We thank you for that. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. If you have anything to bring to God, I challenge you to do it now as we stand and sing.